You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, welcome back. You're like, man, the jacket came off. He must mean business. All right. Uh, as we continue, just first of all, uh, I hope you'll join me in honoring and celebrating Martin Luther King Day, which of course is tomorrow. Uh, as Americans and primarily even as Christians, we continue to be the beneficiaries of his life and his legacy. Once you know, I believe in his dream. I believe in the beloved community, and I'm glad to be a part of that with you. Our church offices will be closed this Friday in honor of that and celebration of that. Amen. All right, here we go. Uh, Welcome to week two of our Abide series where we're looking this month at how we can and what happens when we abide in Jesus and his words abide in us, as he told us. So all month long, we're in the Gospel of John, and today, here we are in John chapter 6. You can follow along on the screen. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. (laughs) Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the reading of his word and all his people with a little fear and trepidation said, 
Amen, yeah. One one of the many blessings for me over the years, as you heard, is getting to connect with that global spiritual family. And Years ago, one time I was doing that, and I was invited to be a conference speaker at a student conference in the Philippines, in Manila. Uh, And uh, it was amazing, I'll never forget it. Filipino people are some of the most amazing, kindest, most humble, most hospitable people you'll ever meet. I love them. Uh, But, uh, and you know this, if you've ever traveled internationally, That sometimes when you go to another country, something there can often will surprise you. So I spent my time in Manila and I was prepared for the local weather ton of humidity. I was prepared uh, for the local time change. There's a 13-hour difference. It's a lot. Prepared for the local water in that I was supposed to drink bottled water only. I was even prepared for the local delicacy, something called balut. If you don't know what that is, you can look it up yourself and be amazed. But what I was not prepared for was the local traffic and local driving conditions because in the U.S. and in the Philippines alike, we both have traffic lanes and traffic lines. But there's only one of us that actually uses them, okay? (laughs) Because in Manila especially, the roads and the highways are really only these massive funnels for vehicles to do this like highly unregulated high-speed dance, around each other. So I learned four things in this. I learned four things. Number one, braking is optional. (laughs) Swerving is recommended. Honking is mandatory. And stopping for red lights is for cowards. All right. I lost count of the times I thought Jesus and I were finally going to meet face to face in the process until about the third day there when I realized another couple of things. First, I realized I haven't actually seen a single accident No one's hitting each other. They know how to do this thing. And the second thing I realized was this. Not only were there no accidents, I was the only nervous person on the road. All my friends in the car with me, the people in the car with me, they were only ever relaxed, smiling, confident, happy, which again is further proof that Filipinos are amazing people. What was the difference? One word, here it is, expectations expectations. They expected it to be like this. I expected it to be like that, and that gap threw me for a loop. All right. Now, I think when it comes to relating to Jesus Christ, when it comes to abiding in Jesus, when it comes to living within the new reality he calls us to live within, there's a parallel here. Here it is. We bring to him our expectations of who he is, they conflict with his reality. And that gap throws us for a loop. And just like when I began to stay and reside for a bit in Manila and my expectations of what life there would look like had to change, the same thing is true when it comes to abiding in Jesus, when it comes to beginning to reside in Jesus, when it comes to making him our heart's true home, our expectations have to adjust to his reality. And to show you how that happens and why it has to happen, I'd like to take you all on a bit of a journey today through John chapter 6. A journey from expectation to reality of what it means to abide in Christ. And this journey is the same journey we're going to track and trace through this interaction these disciples, these first followers of Jesus have with him in John 6. We're going to see... What happens when their expectations meet his reality? 
Okay? So we'll set the whole thing up with all this in mind by asking this question, well then, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means we have to learn, we must learn three things. We learn, number one, we have to learn, Jesus is a master teacher. Number two means we must learn, Jesus is a terrible teacher. Which means, number three, we must learn, maybe Jesus isn't a teacher after all. Now, if you're intrigued, provoked, offended, or just curious about any of these so far, my only answer is good. (laughs) I've done my job I get uh, a bit, I guess. Number one, though, let's learn this. Something we must learn here when it comes to abiding in Christ, we'd love to learn that Jesus is a master teacher, okay? So let's go. Here we go. We go in John 6. We're picking up the story after Jesus has performed the only miracle that appears in all four of the Gospels. It's called the feeding of the 5,000, where in front of literally thousands of eyewitnesses, Jesus multiplies some fish and some bread to feed a crowd, giant crowd, listening to him teach. And of course, this is so astonishing. Everyone, rightly, understandably, wants to know what the miracle means. So what does the miracle mean? Jesus says the miracle means this. Verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Cut scene. What's he getting at here? Jesus here is teaching a universal truth, which is this. We all hunger for something that will fill us for forever. We all hunger for something that will fill us for forever. We're looking for meaning. We're starving for satisfaction. We're all hungry for something to fill us. Now, one of the best ways I think this teaching of Jesus' has been illustrated has been in a short story by someone named Franz Kafka. Like, I didn't see that one coming. Okay, all right. Kafka was an Austrian existentialist, and he wrote a lot of brilliant and bizarre stuff. You may have been forced to read the one about the guy who turns into the giant cockroach. Remember that one, Uh, the metamorphosis? Okay. One of my favorite stories of his is called A Hunger Artist, which somehow after this last week feels fairly appropriate. All right. But the hunger artist, the character in the story, is a man who fasts up to 40 days in public. For fandom, he's like a performance artist. And at first, when he does this, the public loves him. He becomes super famous. And at the end of each 40-day fast, his manager would escort him out of this cage in which he fasted in public to cheering and wild applause. Why did the hunger artist do this? He says this, so that his frail condition might be appreciated. But after a while, he found that 40 days just wasn't enough, and he began to resent his manager for making him stop, you know, to keep him alive. It says he began to ask himself then, well, why stop fasting at this particular moment after 40 days of it? Why should he be cheated of the fame he would get for fasting longer, for being not only the record holder of all time, but for beating his own record by a performance beyond human imagination? So he begins to fast longer and longer, but unfortunately, as he does so, the public only ignores him more and more, and so he fires his manager, and he moves his cage into a local zoo to try to maximize the amount of people that he's seen by, but now he's totally ignored, and as he's ignored, he complains, though he's working so hard at fasting, it says the world 
was cheating him out of his reward. In the end, here's how the story ends. He literally starves himself to death and he dies. I know it's weird and depressing. Okay, you know, listen, you go see something like Star Wars, you know what you're gonna get, right? Sci-fi, space battles. You read Austrian existentialists, you know what you're gonna get. Weirdness and death, okay. So in the last day of his life in the story, the cage attendant at the zoo comes to see him as he's about to die. And here's how the story ends. Quote, I always wanted you to admire my fasting, said the hunger artist. We do admire it, said the overseer affably. But you shouldn't admire it, said the hunger artist. Well, then we won't admire it, said the overseer. But why shouldn't we admire it? Because I have to fast. I can't help it, said the hunger artist. What a fellow you are, said the overseer. Why can't you help it? Because, said the hunger artist, I couldn't find the food I liked. What's he saying? He's saying nothing in this world can satisfy me. Nothing I found can fill my heart. He's saying, like Bruce Springsteen saying the boss, everybody, come on, has a hungry heart, right? Everybody wants to have a home. Everybody wants a place to rest. Ain't nobody want to be alone. Now, when Jesus, Franz Kafka, and Bruce Springsteen all agree on something, we just might want to pay attention. (laughs) Humanity is hungry. But for what? Well, Jesus here and throughout the Gospel of John puts it like this. He said, we're all hungry for something he says, he calls this in verse 54, eternal life, eternal life. Now, I don't mean living forever, like you just exist on and on, neither does Jesus. That's not eternal life here. And by the way, there's another word the Bible has for what it means. When you just live on and on forever, within the context of your own desires, personal wants, little life, own needs, the Bible calls that condition hell. Now, Jesus is speaking of something different. And you know this because there are two words in general the Bible uses for life. The first word in the Greek is the word bios, where we get our word biology, among others. It just means existence, existence. The other word for life, of course, is what some of us name our children now. It's the word zoe, and it means quality of life or abundant life. What's the difference? Uh, a couple of years ago, to illustrate this, our, our family took a little trip to a lake in North Texas, a little bit, summer vacation, and this was a beautiful property. Uh, the place backed up to the water, and there were these canoes there, paddle boards, and we got out, and we paddled around and canoed, and then we came back to this huge backyard with all these trees there. Uh, in between two of the trees was one of my son's favorite things in the whole place, which was this giant hammock. And he, he went and he got a soda, right, every kid's ultimate life, gets his soda, pops the top, gets into the hammock, he gets swallowed up and disappeared in this huge thing between these two trees. And we hear his voice call out. He said, Dad. And I said, yeah, buddy. He said, this is the life. <laughs> this is the life, yeah. What's he saying? He's not saying, this is existence. Right. No, he's saying that somehow this is a quality of life unknown to me before now. And Jesus says, we are all starving. We're hungry for eternal Zoe. And anything else, he says, that you take into you besides him will spoil. It'll go sour and rotten and only turn your stomach. And you know this, by the way, if you've just lived long enough, come on, success will spoil. It was nice for today, but you're not always there. 
right? Uh, it can always go bad. Even the very best things in life can even break bad if you place all your hopes. In relationships, sometimes those things that were good, they can go bad. Your family can spoil. It was good today, sometimes not. Your body can spoil. How many of you feel like that now? Like you wake up today, like I'm good today. We'll see about tomorrow, right? You can spoil. Everybody, the point is, has a hungry heart. We're all hunger artists starving for something. Oh, but we got a problem. It's that everything in this life will spoil. This is Jesus teaching here, and it's brilliant. Jesus is, therefore, a master teacher. He's surfacing something that is universally true, universally experienced in a way that's entirely unforgettable. Now, let's pause here and just acknowledge before we move on that up to a point, this is kind of what we expect from someone like Jesus, right? Maybe we've heard about him like this crowd. Maybe we've read about him like some of you. Or maybe you're in church a lot. Maybe you haven't been in forever. Maybe you're brand new. This is your first time here. But regardless, we all sort of expect this from a guy like that. Like if we're listening to somebody who was you know, talking 2,000 years ago, I'm sure he had something good to say. We kind of like this about Jesus. We like it that he's a, a great teacher with good advice, good information, right? A master teacher with parables and quips and quotes and insights. But then our expectations oh, suddenly meet his reality and we quickly find out something else here we didn't see coming, which is this. Uh-oh, not only is he a master teacher, but number two, he's actually a terrible teacher. Why do I say this? Well, first of all, again, my mom and sister, both teachers. Teachers, most teachers I know love to answer questions they're asked by their students, okay? Uh, especially when they're asked about an area of their expertise. And we're all like this. Somebody asks you about something you're interested in, you kind of start going on and on. And especially teachers, when teachers are asked a question, they love to wax eloquent about all the stuff they know and engage with their students. Uh, but Jesus is, well, different. Do you know how many questions that Jesus, the teacher, is asked in the Gospels, we have 183 recorded questions people ask Jesus. You think this would bring out more illustrations, more parables, more teaching and sermons, but no. Do you know how many questions he answers, actually, out of the 183 he's asked? Eight. Eight. Only eight times does he directly answer someone's question. That's less than 5% of the time. What kind of a teacher then, after teaching some really hard concepts, ignores you in your questions 95% plus of the time? If this were a teacher in a real classroom you were taking a class from, when you filled out, come on, the evaluation at the end of the course, what would you say and recommend? Like, fire this guy. You would say that's unacceptable, and that's basically what the crowd and the disciples do here. They literally say, Jesus, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> like, you're not doing a very good job here. And then they ask him a question. Who can accept this? Like, who's your audience here? And he ignores them again. <laughs> Instead, he asks them a question back. Jesus said to them, okay, fine. Does this offend you? Do I offend you? 
And you're like, what is this? You don't answer my questions. You seem to ignore me. And then you say something like this, like, Jesus, if it weren't for the free catfish and the hot butter rolls I just got, I might be looking for another class. What could Jesus have said that offended them? Well, so far, so far, two things. Number one, Jesus said this, verse 49. Here it is. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. He says it twice so they won't, they won't miss it. They died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, speaking about himself, which anyone may eat and not die. What's this? Well, this, of course, is a direct Illusion. It's a reference to one of the main uses of bread in the Hebrew scriptures. This one being the reference to the manna, the golden grams from God that were provided daily for God's people back in their desert days in the book of Exodus. Uh, these uh, wafer flakes, manna, it literally means, what is it? Fell from the sky and they fed the people, fed the people. So Jesus is saying, remember, remember, okay, how your ancestors got that daily bread, that manna in order to live. They said, yeah, he says this, that bread was fake it was fake bread from heaven. I'm the real bread from heaven. They ate it and died. If you'll eat me, you'll live. Okay. Now, you kind of get that. I, but I think it's hard for us to grasp the deep level of offense that's going on here. So let me try to bring it out. I'm going to try to be gracious here, but I'm making a point. Here I go. Imagine a group of, let's just say, hardcore U.S. nationalists. Could be nationalists anywhere. For our, we're here in the U.S., a U.S. nationalist. And Jesus says to them, you know, your constitution, your flag, your constitution is a fake constitution. Your founding fathers signed it and died. I'm the real constitution that gives you the right to live this certain way, to be who you are. You know, your flag it's a fake flag. I'm the real flag that ought to inspire, inspire true devotion and sacrifice. Now, do you feel that? All right, we're getting a little closer, okay. Here, listen, listen, here's what I'm saying. This. Here's why I'm saying this. The Ark of the Covenant in the Hebrew Scriptures. Remember the Ark, right? Big glory box, people carried it around, right? Indiana Jones, all that. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were three things. There were the symbols of Israel. It was a stick that belonged to Moses' brother Aaron was the Ten Commandments. The third thing was a little jar. Inside, you know what the little jar was inside the little jar? Manna. Manna from back in the day. Manna was literally a national symbol of Israel. And Jesus looks at that and he says, your national symbols are nothing. I am everything. That's offense number one. If Jesus is such a master teacher, why is he, A, not answering their questions and B, intentionally provoking his students and making them quit the class? All right, let's keep going. Offense number two, he goes on to say this. All right, this, that's not enough. Let me just go on further. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh, like he won't quit saying this, drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Again, the eating the flesh, drinking the blood stuff. This is another cultural reference to Israel's past. The people were told back in the day in the law of Moses, you cannot eat 
the, or drink the flesh of an animal or drink the blood of a sacrificial, any animal, let alone a sacrificial animal. You can't do that. That stuff is sacred and set apart for God. If you eat it, if you drink it, you're worse than a pagan and God will not accept you. That's what they were told. And here comes Jesus, and he says this, I know you were taught for centuries that you aren't supposed to eat the flesh, drink the blood of a sacrifice or any animal, but unless you do that with me, God won't accept you. So with the first, what's he after? The first offense, with the manna, Jesus is saying this, I'm what you really needed, excuse me, excuse me, what you've always wanted all along. With the manna, he's saying, I'm what you always wanted. With this one, He's saying, I'm what you really need. What you really needed. The manna, it's what you always wanted. This one, I'm what you really needed. I'm the sacrifice you need and must feed on in order to get eternal Zoe. Oh, this is terrible. Why does Jesus offend like this? If you've ever read any of the Roman Catholic author, Flannery O'Connor's short stories, you know that they frequently feature a couple things. You can always look for them. Number one is a grotesque character. Number two, there's a shocking twist of an ending. And maybe one of her best ones is called Revelation. It's all about a very mean woman named Mrs. Turpin, uh, who because of her religious convictions, she imagines herself better than everyone else around her. And the story goes, one day, uh, Mrs. Turpin is sitting in a doctor's waiting room, the office there, waiting for her appointment. And when she's suddenly assaulted by an ugly college student named Mary Grace, not very subtle, Grace, okay, we get the point, all right. Mary Grace has overheard Mrs. Turpin's verbal mutterings about how she's better than everyone else, about she would never do that, she's better than these people, those people, and Mary Grace can't take it anymore, and finally she throws her college textbook across the room, hits Mrs. Turpin square in the forehead, leaps across the room, begins to choke and throttle Mrs. Turpin's neck, and yells at her, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Mary Grace is pulled off her. Mrs. Turpin goes home and she's offended by two things in particular in this statement. She's offended by the hell part because she believed as a Christian hell was only for other people. And number two, she was offended by the hog part as she herself raised hogs with her husband and kept her hogs quite clean, thank you, unlike other people. But she, a hog in hell? No way. She's angry about it. And she goes home and she goes out in a field and she has this conversation with God about her offense and she asks him, God, why did you have to send me a message like that? And the story ends with a vision God shows her, a revelation of all the people she hated and looked down on and she sees them in this vision going up, getting into heaven ahead of her, kind of like on a stairway to heaven, jumping and leaping as they trusted the grace of God alone to save them. She saw them being transformed and saved by sheer grace alone and not culture, race, education, or upbringing or morality. Oh, why did Flannery O'Connor write these stories? And this is one of the nicer ones, by the way. Yeah, some of them are so shocking, you can't ever, don't ever want to read them again. And she said that she did, she said she wrote them to shake, quote, the Christ-haunted South out of its tranquilized goodness. So she wrote shocking stories full of these racist, selfish characters to wake people up. Why does Jesus offend like this? I think this is what he's doing. Teaching like this. He's saying to his God-haunted countrymen, you have been tranquilized. 
in your own goodness. You think that by not eating some meat with some blood in it, you're really right with God. He said, but I tell you, unless you have a revelation that you must be saved by my grace alone, you can't be accepted by God. Let me ask you, do good teachers make good claims like this? Why is it when your expectations meet his reality, he becomes the kind of teacher whose class you would never want to take at all? Maybe it's because of number three. It's because maybe Jesus isn't a teacher after all. And by this, I don't mean he's not brilliant. We've established that, I hope. He's not a master. We've already gone through that. No, what I mean is that maybe, maybe while he's a teacher first, yeah, he's a teacher first, He's not a teacher most. He's not a teacher most. That's not really who he is most of all. In the end, ultimately, how can I say this? All right. Someone by the name of F.F. Bruce. He's a Bible scholar, and he points out that when Jesus makes this statement in John 6, I am the bread of life. In Greek, he's using these two words. Ego, amy. Ego, amy. What's this? Okay. Uh, every language has a way of shortening itself, right? I mean, think about in English. To shorten our language, we use what? Contractions, okay? Instead of saying, I will not, we say what? I won't. Instead of I do not, we say I don't, right? But this is interesting. Think about it. When you want to make the point real clear, what do we do? We draw the phrase out. For example, uh, if someone asks you to go to, to lunch today with them after church and you are unable, you could say, I won't be able to make it. That's one thing. But if you say, I will not be able to make it. <laughs> That's something else. So what's Jesus doing here? Something else. Jesus is not saying, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, I am, ego, a me, the bread of life. Why is this a big deal? When he uses this phrase, I am, in seven different ways in the Gospel of John, Jesus follow me, is intentionally creating the greatest possible metaphorical, linguistic, cultural offense he could dream up. Because I am was the name that God himself used of himself all the way back in the burning bush, the seminal uh, launching moment of the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. I am, it means this, I existed before I existed after. I have always existed and I will always exist. It means I am being itself. No beginning, no end. And Jesus uses this phrase, I am, over and over again. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to God. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. And then he caps off all these seven ego amies with one more by simply leaving off anything at the tail end of it. In John chapter 8, he looks square at a crowd of Pharisees and he says, you remember Abraham? They're like, yeah, we do. He said, before Abraham... Ego, a me. I am. And you know what? That moment, they wanted to kill him. Why? Because they got it. They got what he's saying. The point is, this is a clear acclaim to divinity as Jesus of Nazareth could ever make before Abraham was. Ego, a me. I am. He's saying, I'm not a human teacher. I'm God, your Savior. You know, in Christian tradition, tradition, the writer of this gospel, John, you know what he's traditionally called? Paintings, you may see this. He's traditionally called St. John the Evangelist. Evangelist. You want to know why? 
Because at every point here, he's not trying to get you to just listen to Jesus. He's trying to get you to believe in Jesus. These things were written, John says, at the end of the gospel. John 6 was written, he said, so that you will not just listen to, but that you will believe in, that you'll take into yourself Jesus Christ, that you'll abide in him, trust him for your eternal Zoe, make him your true home, and so that you will arrive at the same place one person in this passage does at the very end. At the very end of this passage, when the terribleness of Jesus' teaching begins to set in, some people Yeah, they begin to leave Jesus. And maybe you're tempted to right now. And Jesus looks at him and he says this to his 12. You all don't want to go too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, well, to whom shall we go? Simon says, you have the words of eternal Zoe. He said, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, Jesus, we can't leave. You're what we're hungry for. For how can we see the fullness of what Peter sensed in that moment? I think we can like this. Jesus Christ, not long after this moment, when he went to, when he was on the cross, as he hung bleeding and dying, he looked at the people killing him. His enemies, those who hated him, he looked out at them and then he prayed this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. What was he doing in that moment? He was blessing and then breaking. He blessed them, then his body broke. Why is this important? Well, think about it. How does physical bread help you live? Come on. The only way that bread helps you live is when it breaks, right? When it's torn and taken in. If the bread, the loaf, stays whole, you starve. But when the bread's torn and broken and you take into you what's been broken, now you live. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's telling us here, one day, yeah, I'll be broken, I'll be torn, but I can and will bring you life, what you're really hungry for when you take me into you. Why? Is he saying that? Again, he's not just a teacher. He is God our Savior. Have you received him like this? Have you received him like that? Have your expectations met his true reality? All right. Before I pray to you, pray to you, pray for you here. How can we just apply this? You're thinking, how can I apply this two, two ways real quick, and then I'm going to pray. First, when that thing goes wrong in your life, because it will, what do you feed on? Like, uh, when the thing happens, listen, if you looked at that thing and you say, job, you're my life. Marriage are my life. Kids are my life. Health are my life. It'll spoil you. It'll go rotten. It'll turn you sour and bitter. But in that moment when you turn to look and you look to Jesus, you say, Jesus, you are my life. Those things are important, but you're my life. That's what it means to feed on him. You're drawing your life and strength from him. And number two, if you're in a desert moment today, like people are, God has bread for you. If he fed his people like that back then, oh, how much more does he have living bread for you today? Let me take a moment here. I'm going to pray and ask God to meet us in this holy moment. Lord, we just ask you. We've asked and fasted all week that you would meet us here. And I'm praying for us. If our hearts have never met your reality, and we've become aware of this, Lord, I'm asking for courage today to take a step. If you're here and you're saying, I've never followed Jesus, never made him my heart's home, but today's my day. 
I don't just need a teacher whose advice I can take or reject. I need salvation from a God who loves me. If that's you, would you just pray this out loud? I mean, just say, or say, Jesus, I'm coming to you. Not home or online, Jesus, I'm coming to you. I receive you. I see that you've come not just to teach me, but to save me. Lord, would you give me grace now to follow you? Jesus, I repent for all the ways I've trusted myself. Your word calls it sin. Would you forgive me and bring me now into your new kingdom? I believe that you died for me. I believe you were raised for me. And I believe you'll keep me. Would you give me grace now to follow you like you called me to? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.